What's going on, guys and gals? My name is Chris Tondevold, and this is Ambition Radio. This is a podcast where we try to find people that have found that balance between their life, family, career, and the pursuit of their passions, dreams, or hobbies. This episode, we feature DC-based singer-songwriter Matt Tarka. We go through how he got into music, how quickly technology changes and evolves, the inspiration behind his own podcast, Cover to Cover, the importance of a community, and how to continue pursuing your passions even with an addition to the family. I'll have all his links in the show notes. Make sure to check out his own podcast, Cover to Cover, where he brings guests on to talk about a particular album from the outside in. You might even get to hear me gush about one of my favorite bands on a future episode. As always, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts, follow me on Spotify, and subscribe on Google Play or however you get your podcast. Thank you for everything. Here's the show. Enjoy. And you've been playing music for a while, right? Yeah. Hmm. Where should we begin? Let's go back to when I was 15 years old and I was playing baseball in a, you know, kind of a teener league. So I think it was, you know, midget league, then teeners and twilight. So, but I think this was right around teeners, so 14 or 15 years old. And there was a local music store where I grew up in South Central Pennsylvania called Cagnoli's. And they outfitted most of the musical equipment that was um, being used in, you know, elementary, middle, and sure. high school bands and the occasional, you know, people that decided to start their own bands or projects or what have you. And during that baseball season, I had a friend of mine who somehow miraculously conned my mom and dad into purchasing a bass guitar for my birthday. <laughs> and it all started with a, a what was it? It was a, it was a PV Fury. And that was complemented with a PV Basic 60, so 60 watt amp. And I, I apparently at that time, I kind of looked the part as somebody that needs to belong to a band. And my friend kind of did the heavy lifting and made sure that my parents figured out a way to put a little money aside and, and, and give me a really kick-ass bass guitar. And that really kind of launched my sort of uh, rock and roll world. I sure, guess. yeah. 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 Even though you were forced into it, did you even think about like playing before he was like, "Hey, you should get that uh, a bass"? Not really. I, I was. It was. It was interesting. I was more. I was leaning more towards. Oh gosh, I was leaning more towards like jazz and a little sure. bit of classical because I was primarily a saxophone player for several years before that. I mean, there was always you know kind of rock and roll music in the background, but I was thought, oh, that's that's somebody else's trip. That's not really mine right now. I need to just kind of stick with saxophone. But then I realized that, oh my gosh, you know, saxophones are becoming a little bit more ubiquitous in, in pop music. I was like, oh, yeah. well, maybe I could do this. Maybe, maybe we'll see. I and mean, I just kind of cast that idea aside. But my friend Jeff certainly sealed the deal a couple of years later. Was that also around the time that like Scott was coming back too with all the, the horns and the... I guess it's alternative Scott. I don't know what you would think. Like Mighty Mighty Boston's and stuff like that. It's probably when Mighty Mighty Boston's were getting their start. This would have been more along the lines of like George Harrison's Cloud Nine when I was yeah. realizing that saxophone was, you know, getting back into popular culture or popular music. So kind of late 80s-ish. Gotcha. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I, I like the fact that he just like forced you into playing music with him. Why was it the bass? Just because he needed a bass player and you're like, yeah, I can figure this out. Yeah, it was really that simple. He needed, you know, he had, he found a drummer. He had a, a lead guitar player. He himself was writing lyrics and was playing some rhythm, like really kind of like ethereal sort of like, you know, really cool rhythm guitar. But then they just needed, you know, something to round out the rhythm section. And he and I had, be, you know, were friends for a couple of years. And, you know, he just kind of took a look at me one day when I was playing shortstop and said, Hey, do you want to be in a band? <laughs> and then, and then, you know, we just got to talking on the bench when it was our turn to bat. And okay, well, how do we how do we make this work? So, literally after that one ball game, he, he approached my mom and dad, and you know, little did I know that my my sort of musical fortune was about to change. You know, because I, I really didn't have much of an interest in getting involved too much with rock music. Right, I, I would I would I felt like I would appreciate it later on, but. In terms of actually picking up a guitar, that's really where it began for me. That's really interesting because I don't know if I would ever have like the balls enough as a kid to be like, hey, first of all, let me 
tried to convince my friend to just pick up an instrument that he has no idea about. But also, let me convince his parents to buy it for him. Yeah. <laughs> you got to have a unique personality, I suppose. <laughs> and Jeff was somebody that, you know, he was a very, he was an extremely verbose person at the right times. And uh, he was very persuasive, <laughs> for sure. I can see that. You, you yeah. make a hell of a salesman, I'm sure. <laughs> so when, when you started playing with them, you started out with bass. And I assume you had a couple of different high school bands that you were into? By into, in, in terms in, of... I guess, yeah, playing, right. Yeah, so this, so this first band was... I think it was untitled. I think there were a couple of working names like Red Feet and The Chairs, just sort of relatively innocuous names. But then later on, about a year and a half later, I joined a project called The Generators. And The Generators was kind of this like psychedelic blues sort of band. I was still playing bass. I was still playing that uh, PV Fury bass. But then I decided, you know what, I needed to add, you know, something into my proverbial arsenal. So I decided to, with my own money that where I was working at an amusement park, purchase a Fender P bass. It was beautiful. It was sunburst. I loved it. And that really, that, that particular sound from the P bass really became like the right vehicle for that particular project called the generators. And the generators was, you know, like I said, kind of a psychedelic blues thing with a little bit of bluegrass influence in there so we were we were covering you know songs by oh neil young the grateful yeah. dead sunny yeah. sunny boy williamson some traditional folk stuff too jimmy cliff we were we were really all over the place right because we were we were just like a bunch of hippies you know <laughs> and then after that you know our our name the generators which was named after i think it was a jimmy buffett autobiography or something like that we decided to morph into Talji wood which if you can appreciate Alice in Wonderland, you know exactly where Alice travels to in the movie. And that's yeah, I was about to say that would fit way better for the sound that you're doing because the generators sound almost like a, a 50s or 60s rock band or like a, a first generation punk band. You would just think that it would have a little bit more rock and roll to it rather than like the psychedelic bluesy aspect of it, just from the name. But I I like I like the the name consciousness part of saying yeah this is what we're doing and we should probably get like weird even with with that just like the reference in it i like that yeah yeah it's funny we we really practiced a lot in my basement and you know kudos to my parents for putting up with us for the better part of two years and we it was fun because we used to tape record all of our practices just so we, you know, got a sense of, you know, what we were doing, where we were headed and all that good stuff. And, you know, we practiced for a couple of talent shows and variety shows. We, you know, we did a, a really cool benefit show for Four Diamonds and it was fun, like, you know, getting a chance to play for the student body, you know, several hundred people. And our very last gig before we kind of all went our separate ways and by separate ways, we all decided that, you know, college was probably right. something that we would we should really thoughtfully consider the last song we played it was it was it was almost like we were attributing ourselves in some ways we covered jefferson airplane's white rabbit nice yeah and we had to supply lyrics you know ahead of time to make sure there were no you know vulgar words or anything like that and <laughs> i really don't i really don't think that the principal read those lyrics very carefully or you know, perhaps he he forgot what that song was about because right. he was around. He was around at the time. That's funny. So it it sounds like your parents have been supportive since the beginning. Then, right, being able to get you the bass and then able to give you a, a spot to play. And I also think it's interesting where you mentioned that you were recording yourselves because not every band does that to give you kind of like a sense of self and a sense of sound. So that's really mm. interesting that you're doing that so early on. Was that something that just came out naturally with the the group? Yes and yes, because a lot of the music we were listening to, the bands that we were really into and and to a degree, you know, large degree still are, they were encouraging live recording of their shows, you know, by having taper sections in a live music setting. So that really did come natural to us. And we would use that as to, okay, here's, here's where we change keys after 12 measures or 12 bars. And what we would do is, yeah, we would listen to these, we would listen to the playback of these cassette tapes in my basement, but we would also 
get in my station wagon or something like that and just drive around and listen to this stuff. So the majority of these practices and recordings happened there. And while it was fun for us, I think it was also kind of a, a fun way for my parents to be accountable for their wild teenage son <laughs> who who wanted to play a lot of music, but they could say, oh, they're just making noise down there. It's cool. Right. All right. Yeah. Because it, it's always that thing where you have some of those parents that are like, if you're going to just, if you're going to drink or if you're going to do stuff, just do it here. Like we have a sense of control. That way, you know, you're safe. Right. Mm-hmm. And right. It's, even with rock and roll, right? You just, right. yeah, just enjoy it down in the basement. Don't yeah. go out anywhere. That's fine. But you guys can play around. It's okay. Yeah. I mean, fortunately for us, it, w- it was about the music. You know, sure, we, we, we certainly had our fun. But yeah, I mean, we practiced probably religiously twice a week, you know, or three or four days a week, d- d- you know, depending on what, you know, homework schedules and that type sure, of thing yeah. looked like. But like every day. After school, like we would practice from three thirty until it was time to have dinner, we got really tight. Yeah, that is amazing dedication too. That uh, you would not think would be there so early. I I really I really like that. So, playing bass, were were there more bands that you had where you were that rhythm section before transitioning to kind of where you're in the the forefront? That's a good question. So. There was a band that I was in towards the latter end of college. This would have been the very late 90s, early, early 2000s. It was, it was, it was a very short-lived, barefoot acoustic trio called Smith's Grove. And I would say that because there were two acoustic guitars and they were positioned in such a way on stage where we had one left-handed guitar player, the other one was right-handed. So if you think of like Paul and John of the Beatles yeah, that's and, really and cool. the way they, and the way they kind of, you know, staggered themselves like they were almost like a, a set of antlers, if you will, on, on stage. And then there was a singer in the middle. So I was, I was the principal lyricist for that project that was not playing bass. And that was just a conscious decision because I thought there was just enough kind of a chugging rhythm, sure. texture and sound to it. And I didn't want to necessarily muddy that. So I focused on writing lyrics. And then that was, that was a really fun project, you know, sort of a similar situation played a bunch of local bars in in northeastern Pennsylvania and got on the radio a little bit there and then I took a couple of years off from music and then I had met an alumni sometime in 2004 and he and I had a lot of common threads when it came to music and he encouraged me to play some bass for him so I I wound up uh playing bass and singing some lead vocals in a project called Colonel Potter which was uh inspired by that uh, character from MASH. Very, very cool. I like that. So with with those projects, was the, the acoustic one where you started actually writing lyrics and kind of thinking of more of your own even voice when it comes to that? I would say yes. You know, I had been writing you know, poetry for myself when I was playing in, in Tulji Wood and the Generators and, and, you know, that other, that early, early project before that. But those songs were just kind of, they were kind of for me, you know, they just didn't sure. necessarily fit with the constructs of, of those other projects. And, and to be completely truthful about it, I don't know if I was very confident at the time in sharing them as part of a larger project. I, right. just, I just wanted to kind of have them just live on paper and, and be themselves. But I think that acoustic trio project that I was in in college definitely gave me more confidence. And that was, you know, kind of a situation where, you know, a friend knew I had these books of poetry and it was like, hey, why don't you get in here, you know, and and see what we can do with what we're working on. So the other two guys were doing their own stuff. They were doing covers, writing their own originals. And, you know, it was just a, a fortunate little accident where their project was getting pretty hot. And the stuff that I was coming up with had the same kind of tone and tenor and and fit really nicely. So we ended up, you know, going out, playing some shows, you know, for that college student body. And uh, yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I held on to a couple of songs that didn't make it onto, you know, anything, any, you know, songs that we were working on with mm-hmm. Smith's Grove. And they became, some of those songs became solo tunes that would be recorded later. Gotcha. Okay. So I I like that idea where you're, you're really kind of, you can see the trajectory where you're, you're breaking out of your shell a little bit to where you're able to 
get get that little confidence that your friend had to just convince people to buy him stuff or buy you stuff, I guess. Because that's <laughs> that that part of you know wanting to share what you're working on. I feel is something that takes time to get used to. That way, you can have kind of like a collaborative effort and get your your own thoughts and feelings out there. Because I feel like that's pretty daunting, especially if you're a little bit younger, right? Oh, for sure. Are we talking about like college age or even shortly after that? Even I, then, I guess, right? Yeah. 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 I'd say 19, 20 years old, you're still thinking, oh, is this, you know, am I, is this gonna, am I going to get laughed out of the room here for these lyrics right. or, right. you know? That, yeah. That's it. And it's always scary to kind of put yourself out there, right? So I, sure. I like, I like this. And then we're at the, the tail end of college. What were you studying when you were in, in school? So, I wanted to be a, a radio journalist at one point in time. I, I had a very, I I got a very broad communication degree. So my focus was on radio production, radio journalism. So a lot of what I was, a lot of what I was studying was, you know, cutting and splicing tape and and editing, you know, different kinds of recordings. So a lot of that analog sort of technology today. You know, shortly after I graduated, became obsolete. Right. So much was, you know, becoming a lot more digital. Fortunately, I had taken a lot of, you know, general journalism and news writing type of classes where, you know, strategic types of communications were essential no matter what industry you would get involved with. So, sure. so yeah, it was, it was funny. Like, I've always had an interest in writing and communications for different people and, you know, I've also had an interest in uh, science-based communications too. And I was able to combine them shortly after college by securing an internship with a nonprofit group called the International Food Information Council. And uh, I did a lot of writing for them from an international perspective, focusing on food safety and nutrition uh, types of issues. And, you know, it's, it's funny, I discovered them you know, because I wanted to move, I wanted to move to DC shortly after college because, as we both know, it's kind of alphabet soup there in right. the sense of how many you right. know, nonprofit or associations exist. So I knew that I wanted to be there because I had taken several trips when I was in middle school and, you know, some trips in, in high school and college, like, you know, in particular to, to bring it back to, to sports a little bit, I spent a lot of time going to RFK Stadium. So I, I always sort of like enjoyed being in DC and, and knew that I wanted to work there at some point. So I ended up, like I said, securing this internship with this organization and that eventually morphed into a full-time position supporting a bunch of food safety nutrition initiatives. Very, very cool. And then, so you're also learning in in college, how to record at least on analog, right? So did that translate to anything that you were doing musically too, as far as trying to help your own bands record too? You know, it didn't. I kept them completely <laughs> separate. All of that knowledge just, you know, I I would probably remember how to cut and splice tape, but this it's funny, the same kinds of techniques that I use with a program like Audacity mm -hmm. to, to edit my own my own little podcast. Some of those techniques and, and, and finesse, you know, and spacing is, is something that, you know, I, I certainly applied to cutting and splicing things for, for some radio programs and advertising campaigns and that kind of thing. So no, I, I, I kept them completely separate. And when it came to recording things with Colonel Potter uh, in the mid 2000s, my friend, I, th I think he used like an early version of GarageBand or something sure, yeah, like yeah, that, yeah. Or, or or maybe Cubase. Okay. So he, you know, he wanted that responsibility, and if if my responsibility was to, you know, set up my bass cab and head and plug in, then fine, <laughs> great. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm happy to focus on, on on the music part of things. But yeah, he was really his name's also Matt, and Matt's really he was really adamant about just hey. Let's let's record some things digitally. Cool. Awesome. That, yeah, that's yeah. that's very cool. When you were doing your own solo stuff, did you have to basically relearn some of the the recording aspects cuz everything that you kind of like what you talked about right out of school, most of the stuff that you may or may not have learned is pretty much right out the window because the world's changing so quickly. So, when I started 
this this solo project, if you will. It was after Colonel Potter broke up. I had a couple of songs that were sort of left over from that period that didn't get recorded. And and as as Colonel Potter existed, I think you could probably go into the archives of MySpace and find something. So when I started this solo acoustic project, I went extremely old school. I went back to that sort of tape recorder mode that I took on when I was in high school. Sure. I had a, I had this like tape, like the Sony tape recorder from the seventies where I would just press play and I would cut ideas. I would cut demos that way. And I would save them that way because I just, I was sort of weirdly paranoid about just storing things on my desktop or something like that in some sort of digital way. So I would just I would just collect these cassettes and just store these ideas. And when I felt like I had a couple of good ideas as to where I wanted to go with some of these songs, I would seek out, I, I was trying to figure out exactly what the landscape was like in terms of who some local producers were at the time. Gotcha. And, okay. And uh, so this took me a couple of years between 2008 and 2011. I think I did something like really quick and dirty. And I was like, oh, that that's cool. I hadn't been in a proper recording studio at that point. This is fun. And, you know, it, it that helped me develop a base to get some early shows and whatnot, whether they were like little clubs or or coffee shops. Like I had one or two, I had a one or two song demo. That was really useful for that. But I thought, you know what? I need something that just sounds a little bit more rounded out. So I went to a couple of you know events to try to just meet some other musicians and hopefully meet some other producers too. And sure. um, at that, in that period of time, I learned relatively quick that Iota Club and Cafe was just a breeding ground for artists oh, yeah. at, at that point. And so I wound up, I think I... I think there were a bunch of musicians and there were a couple of producers that were congregating as part of a, you know, a, a networking event. And that, that word is sometimes a little cringeworthy at times, right? but it was, I just, you know, maybe that, maybe instead of networking, maybe it was more of like a collective of people. And in that collective, I, I wound up meeting a producer named Dave Mallon, who, who runs Innovation Station. And he helped me cut very, very cool, kind of like primitive sounding five song EP that, you know, it had my acoustic guitar vocals and a uh, little bit of djembe percussion and organ so, and, and some piano as well. So it was like, you know, it still, it felt very loose, very bare bones. I got a lot of a lot of mileage out of yeah. that EP, I think. Yeah, it's called Motorcycle Breakfast. It it exists on the interwebs. I like that name, Motorcycle Breakfast is cool. But what what I was gonna say, so for you, you're you're almost starting from scratch on everything because it's going from your college and your hometown, because you're you're up in Pennsylvania at the at those points, and now you're interning in DC and then trying to build a music community around you in DC as well because you need to try to figure out what is actually what exactly is actually out there that you can use as resources at that point, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. So Absolutely. that's that's a yeah. little daunting to do like a new project as well as trying to do basically a new community slash city too, right? Yeah. And this was a total labor of love. I mean, I'm I'm still working at the International Food Information Council and you know, doing a lot of, you know, technical writing for, for scientists and for, you know, members of the food industry at large. So this is the, this whole musical project, whether it was with Colonel Potter, Potter or whether it was with this uh, solo project going under my real name. Yeah. This was something that I was doing, you know, essentially after school, you know, like you'd muster up some hours and, you know, in the day to, to, to rehearse and and you know go back and listen to some demos or even like hop on the train and go to a place like Iota to hear some live music before heading back home. So yeah, I, I certainly you know was having a lot of fun and you know and of the same token I you know probably was burning the candle at both ends too. Yeah, that's that's what I was just about to to say, burning the midnight oil to try to keep up with your passions while trying to also like live in a basically a brand new city for you too. So, I mean, Iota, I feel like when it was around is such a like a big mecca for those independent artists that may may not be able to ever be replaced. I've mm-hmm. 
I've been to IOTA multiple times over the years and it's always such a it was always such a warm and welcoming club and you could really see the passion that was built into basically every little nook and cranny and then on top of that just the the talent of the musicians that are coming in and everybody basically like embracing uh themselves i mean that was that was such a, a really really awesome place uh, it's very disappointing to kind of see the the overall machine kind of swallowed up and you know keep it from having the artists in there and i think they're turning into what condos or something it's something like that yeah yeah it's it's really a shame yeah it's taking you know i think i think is galaxy hut still there yeah i they're, think galaxy right hut is street. still right across yeah that was that was such a, a mecca galaxy hut is still right there too and i'm sure that you you experienced it even more than i did because i just went in as a fan right and for me, being able to see everything from the outside, it was amazing. For you, was that a catalyst for you to really be able to say, oh, I can do this with the connections that are around me and basically by myself too? Yes, it gave me the confidence to, to try new things. If I had an idea, you could count on going to a place like IOTA, which not only was a great sounding room, but like you mentioned a second ago, really supportive, really welcoming for people to just try stuff. If you had a new song, that, you know, Wednesday nights there was a really cool place to try it. I just, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the warmth there, just the way that that room could fill up on a Wednesday. I mean, when it was happening, you could easily count on 70, 80, 90 people to show up on a random Wednesday and, you know, you could be kind of a relatively unknown person, but then you would, it, it, those open mics kind of would feel like real shows for you, you know? Yeah. If you, per, if you performed well, you might make a half a dozen fans or something like that that will come see you next Wednesday. So I thought it was just a really fun and organic place to grow as a musician. And I miss those kinds of venues terribly. And hopefully, when this, you know, hopefully we can get back to doing that things, you know, that type of thing and, and creating with each other. Yeah, uh, that, would, that would be the, the goal, right? Because right now, it, it, everything feels so disjointed with everything that's going on in the world. But you also have that, that reality where the safe havens of kind of artistic expression are eventually going away as well. And you have kind of that human interaction face-to-face that has transitioned a lot to online as well. And mm-hmm. you, may, you may have seen this where it's, it's a lot of, you know, social media is, is really the, the biggest piece where you can kind of express yourself as well as try to connect with others. But it's such a harder thing to do rather than naturally like meeting someone and hearing everybody playing music and talking and, and kind of that, that bigger connection where it's, it's really that face-to-face, you can feel, you can see, you can smell, you can hear everything that's around you, while the, the social media aspect of it and the internet aspect of it, stuff like MySpace was great, but it, everything gets kind of lost in the ether, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. I admire people that can, you know, that decide to stream live shows on a, on a semi-regular basis. I myself, I've been a little reluctant to do that because like you're talking about having that human connection face-to-face in the room. That is so meaningful. And, you know, people that can just, you know, churn up that kind of excitement to, to sing in front of a computer screen. I mean, kudos to you because it's really, it, for me, it's really hard to just keep that, that energy going in the same way you know that that you're used to in, in performing in in a room so for now i'm writing and when the time comes to go out there and hopefully those venues will exist and people can continue to support them behind the scenes that you know that that's personally my my primary way of expressing myself in front of an audience it's it's very difficult to do it in front you know on instagram or facebook live or yeah or places like that I mean, there there are some really you know really good ones as, as well, like stage it. But you still don't get yeah. that that reaction, that immediate reaction. You don't get that reinforcement that what you're doing is a good or b bad. 
So you don't know what to to fix. You don't know what's hitting. There's there's that emotional disconnect between you and the audience because you don't hear them. You don't even hear like the glass clinking or someone right. talking over your yeah. song or anything like that, right? And it's well, funny. Well, that's a benefit, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, right. The, the lack of show talkers when you go out <laughs> to see live music. You're not dealing with that anymore. You're just what, listening to a stream. That's yeah, pretty great. Yeah, but it it might it might be missed. You never know. Might be uh, playing a show and be like, oh man, I I missed that one dude that's just talking and talking and talking. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that's <laughs> funny. Yeah, I I can't imagine how difficult it is to keep like what you said the energy level. Right. I think that's probably the the biggest piece of it where people are somehow just intrinsically energetic enough to keep going and not having any kind of issues, even if they're just going into a webcam and singing into that. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's mind boggling to me. And the, the fact that like comedians are doing that too, is just insane to me. Like they're, they're trying to do stand up yeah. shows online through a zoom call. And it's just like, this is, this is ridiculous. No one's, they might be laughing at home, but they're, they're not like, this is weird. You have no idea if you're landing a joke or not. Yeah. You're just, Talking into the ether. Yeah. yeah. And I guess that's that's why like everybody has done a podcast, right? That way they can get their own their own dumb voice out there, right? Like that's that's why I started mine. So that that works. It I'm hoping I'm hoping that the world gets to a place where everything is, is like cool again, but I don't know. I'm still a little nervous. And we we can Talk about. I want to talk a little bit more about your music because you're still doing stuff uh, and still working on stuff. You said that you were writing stuff because you've you've had multiple albums come out, right? Right. Yeah. After Motorcycle Breakfast, I I've cut a couple of EPs with a producer Ted Comerford down in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, one's called Surely Late. That came out in 2016, and uh, it was also recorded uh, down at the Fight Auditorium with Mitch Easter. And the same goes with Ted and Mitch with Vision Hazy, which was an EP that was released in 2017. So a little bit of power pop, a little bit of kind of alt country is, you know, seems to be my my bailiwick, you know, with those <laughs> two EPs. And then yeah, right now I'm I'm in the process of working on some new material. I was initially thinking of an EP, but I think I'm gonna go the singles route this time. Very cool. It, it makes it seems to make sense in my little universe because we don't know what's going to happen next with right. this whole thing. Right. And just to keep, I don't know, just to, just to feel like you, you, you have something to say every couple of months could be an interesting approach right now. Yeah. And I, I think, I think that also helps. I, I, I will ask about like how you develop those connections here in a second, but I, with the singles, I think it's interesting because you have those those finished projects right there. Like each song is just that finished one. And then like what you said, you're you're able to kind of produce something every few months and keep people coming back possibly, right? And even if something is going on in your own life, whether it's your work or whether it's, you know, you're having a, a kid possibly in your family, right? All of that is there, but you're able to still get like your art isn't just in the background on the stove, just like chilling, right? You're able to still produce something and still get people interested in what you're doing and still able to kind of interact with that base, if that makes sense. I think that's oh, what, oh, yeah. oh, for sure. And you mentioned the idea of having kids. Well, I am actually having a child yeah. relatively soon. So it's going to be a, an interesting balance as to how to keep music going and then also you know, hopefully be a good dad at the same time. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, as much as I would like to just, you know, keep things going and I think it's possible, I'll just have to, you know, just have to manage my time a little bit. And when, when he's sleeping, maybe I'll cut a little like acoustic demo of something and, and store it away. And, and when the opportunity strikes to, to get back into a studio and, and do something with it, then I can. The one thing I can tell you about my creative process is I'm always thinking. I never throw anything away. I'm a pack rat. I, like I, I keep I keep a lot of, you know, I, I still tape record a lot of ideas. I never throw lyrics away. Like there might be something I'm working on right now that seems like it's going to be part of, you know, you know, one song 
But then I look at a, you know, a lyrical phrase or something and, and say to myself, that's a different song. It's yeah, a completely yeah. different. It's a completely different thing. Let's just, let's just move it over here for now and, and see what happens. There are a lot of like really prolific writers out there. I myself am not <laughs> prolific in any, in any way, shape or form. I mean, I have, I have songs that are on vision hazy. One of them was, was written as a poem back when I was in Smith's Grove in 2000. Wow. So it's, it's like sometimes things will reveal themselves. Sometimes, you know, right away, you know, in 20 minutes, sometimes it might take <laughs> 17 years. years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. That's, that's hilarious. Well, and I think one thing that's interesting, so you, you prefer also going to a studio and building connections that way. You were talking about the, the studio in Georgia and I already forgot the other one, but you, you are doing everything that you want as far as recording music and getting it out there all the way as someone that wants to go to a studio and have that experience rather than maybe getting something done at home and, and producing it by yourself, correct? Correct. Is there is there a big difference for you? Like, do you feel just that it's that you may not have the chops for it, or that you just prefer that kind of that atmosphere? I think it's a little bit of both. I I know that I do not have the chops or the discipline to do the recording and to write the music. So I've I've made the conscious decision where if I'm if I'm ready if I'm ready and I have a series of songs that are prepared, whether it's to cut a full length EP or release the singles, that I would prefer to be in a studio where I can you know really just hone in on getting the parts you know the way that I want them recorded, and you know take away any of the you know some of the production and the engineering behind it. Just play your instrument, you know sing in that microphone and just go to work that way. And then, you know, be a part of the arrangement process as well. Once, you know, your parts are recorded, whether they're for scratch tracks and then later, you know, recorded for real after you've already built that house. So that's, that's just the decision, you know, that I've wanted to make rather than, you know, necessarily be, be at the desk. I think that's interesting mostly also because you have your your own podcast that you do and that has the the recording aspect to it but yeah. recording music is obviously a, a whole completely different beast now do you also try to pick the the engineer's brain or the producer's brain to like steal their techniques whenever you may or may not record on a a four track tape you know i don't think i've ever been thoughtful enough to ask those kinds of <laughs> questions. I've sort of kind of, you know, laid in the background and you I know, like that. Al- allowed the process to happen and 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 offer, you know, suggestions as to, you know, what direction we could take a song. But yeah, from a from a recording and production point of view of my own podcast, I've just I've I've tried to simplify that as as much as humanly possible. You know, have the files carefully you know, edit them down as best I can and, and truthfully hope for the best. That, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've really, I've, I've really tried to dumb that part down because I'm, you know, with, before I started my podcast, I mean, I'm still kind of a Luddite in many respects. <laughs> like, I think I was one of the last of my friends to have a smartphone. Yeah. Honestly, like I, I held on to that, like Jethro Gibbs flip phone for as long as I could. Wow, Jethro Gibbs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. Yes, yeah, yeah. I like that. My mom used to watch that all the time, and I was like, "Why? Why? Why is this badass with just that phone? Like, he he can figure it out." And then he's just building a ship inside of his house too. I think, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't yeah. know what he's doing. He he's stuck between two worlds for sure. <laughs> he's playing the long game. Yeah, <laughs> waiting for Waterworld to actually come through. That way, his house just gets swept away, and it's oh, hey, I have a boat. It's cool. What a what a terrible movie! <laughs> yeah, it's not. I remember good. I remember seeing that in the theaters uh, back in to come out in like ninety three or ninety four, and I had this really just this crazy friend that just got up in the movie theater and said, "This movie is fucking awful," <laughs> and <laughs> everybody just started laughing and then sat back down and 
just continue to watch that just tragedy, you know, <laughs> unfold. <laughs> yeah, that that thing is wild, and the fact that it, it bankrupt the studio, I think, is also oh, did it. Uh, yeah, yeah, because it's it's so expensive. It's so expensive, and the only good thing that has come out of it is the the actual experience at the the amusement park because they do whole shows based off of Waterworld and they're intense. Like there's all these stunts and explosions and water everywhere. And it's, it's fantastic. What so, amusement park is this? Whatever the, I'll forget. I'll put it in the show notes uh, and I'll, I'll send it to you when, once I look it up. But it's, it's a, uh, I want to say it's like one of the universal studios or something like that where they do the whole, they'll do a whole show based off of it. So it's all a stunt show. And it's insane. Like I've seen the the YouTube videos that they put out and it's crazy. I haven't been able to go down there and see it, but that's the only good thing that's come out of that movie outside of the huh. fact that people think that they can drink their own pee, I guess. I don't know. That's disgusting. <laughs> yeah. I, maybe, maybe I'll take a virtual reality tour on YouTube or something. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I highly recommend <laughs> I never, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> never sit foot there again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. That terrible movie. That's so funny. So also, we, you were talking about how you were a Luddite, right? And doing your own show, which is cover to cover, which I it's think... It's very is, contrarian, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny. So I, I was talking earlier how like I used to do live concerts and help out with live sound and all that good stuff. I never learned how to record. I never learned any of the, the, the basics of anything. So when I'm starting this show... I'm going in as completely fresh. I have no idea what I'm doing. And like what you said, kind of editing it down, keeping it simple as possible, and then you know, hoping for the best is really my own motto. Hit hit buttons, see what plugins may or may not sound better. My right ear doesn't work. I have tinnitus in my right ear, so I just focus on my left side and everything's in mono, so it works, I think. So it's it's an interesting thing and it's an interesting journey to try to learn on the fly of everything. And then for you too, I think it would be even more interesting because you can carry some of those principles that you learned in college, but the the actual process of it is completely different because yeah. you're not yeah. doing tape, right? Right. Right. No, I'm I'm using everything digital. I think I'm using Zencaster, which is which is cool because it's one of these programs that you can just have you can just supply links to and then you can edit and then dump it into another program. It's just really, it's an easy, clean interface as the kids like to say. Yeah. yeah. It's very simple. And I, I sometimes think that simple is better than the alternative. I mean, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. 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 Well, that's, that's why they have keep it simple, stupid, right? That, that's yeah. It's a tried and true uh, method. I remember starting out and going to my friend's studios and doing it there. And then just like, this is a lot of money. And I don't know if I want to pay for all this every every week, every month. And then just being like, fuck it. I guess I'll, I'll try to invest in myself and we'll see how this works. I have, I have done the most complicated and then also figured out that it's just like what you said, try to keep it as simple as possible. That way... It's just easier to get the product out, and that's that's what I struggle with the most is getting that product out. So I do want to uh, talk about this because I think it's a very cool concept. So can you talk about cover to cover and like the idea of how that came to be? Sure. So the website for cover to cover is cover to cover conversations.com and the idea is to discover or rediscover music that you've known and grown to love. And, you know, typically I have one guest on per episode and that, that guest ha- gets to make a choice as to what either single or album that they would like to discuss in great detail. It could be something that you really connected to when you were 10 or 11 years old and it, it continues to, to mean different things to you today, or it could have been something that you, you know, say discovered a couple of months ago and it's completely you know, changed and enhanced your life in some sort of positive way. So that's kind of the goal behind it. I mean, I, I tend to ask, you know, a series of questions and the whole thing is kind of in a long form interview right. as well. And, and it's really kind of no holds barred. And 
you know, I ask, you know, what inspired somebody to to choose a certain record. We talk about, you know, maybe the players. We talk about, you know, lyrical content. We also, you know, always make sure, you know, towards, you know, the tail end of it to talk about the, you know, like the actual artistic cover, whether it's front cover, whether it's some things in liner notes. It's it's really kind of a freewheeling conversation in, in, in a lot of respects. What was the inspiration for this? Because I, I think it's really interesting because you do go through the whole gambit and you take a critical look at kind of everything. And the cover to cover aspect, that front cover and that cover art, focusing on that a little bit is not something that you think about anymore because everything's digital, right? Everything's digital and things get, you know, kind of lost that way. I mean, you know, I was having this conversation with a friend of mine yesterday, and I, I appreciate people that have large, you know, digital libraries of music. But what are, you know, I don't think that you're necessarily seeing that cover art that somebody really worked hard to, you know, use as an expression of the music that you're about to hopefully enjoy or appreciate. And there are just, oh, you know, sometimes there are like these little hidden messages and stuff that are, you know, in cover art. I mean, one huge reference point in popular culture is Sgt. Pepper, you know, whether it was on the actual recording or on the actual front cover where, you know, doesn't it say Paul is dead or something like that and those roses towards the bottom of the of that front cover. Like there are just little things like that where either an audience picks up on or, you know, the artists themselves decide to just have a little fun to see if, you know, you know, an audience picks it up. So I, I always find that to be a really important supporting medium in right. a lot of respects. And and the idea of talking about cover art hopefully encourages people to 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 think a little deeper, I suppose, about you know, music that they own rather than just treat things in your own personal library like you're renting them. Yeah. That's a, you that's know, a, that's a very good way to put it. Yeah. I mean, you're, it's, you know, I, I mean, okay. You know, I, I understand, you know, having a subscription for $10 a month to have unlimited music, but with all of that unlimited music that you have, are you really appreciating the art that you enjoy? Right. I don't. I don't even think you know you have enough hours in the day to listen to say fifty thousand albums that are in your own personal catalog. I mean, I don't know. That's just that's just me though. I think it's cool to you know that there's so much access for artists. You know, uh, you know with digital with, yeah. with digital platforms. But I don't know. It's it feels it feels like you're falling short of really connecting with your you know the music that you love. I think it's also interesting because when when you look at it, you still have to put out cover art in a digital as in a digital world. Because how do you like how do you separate yourself? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And how do you separate yourself from all these different images? I think that's the other piece of it too, where you and I remember going into a record store. Right. And seeing a cool yeah. album cover and being like, oh, what's that? Let me look at that. And I, I bought multiple albums just based off of cover work. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I think, I think there's, there's something to still be said about that. I think the, the lost, the lost thing in there is the, the liner notes. That's the biggest thing where you just, you can't figure out who they're saying thanks to, who they're, who, who worked on the album. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't know the producer without having to actually look for that producer, right? You don't mm-hmm. know if you're a musician, you want to figure out, oh, who who actually engineered this? Who, where did, was this recorded? You know, if that's one of your favorite bands, you want to emulate them as much as possible, right? Uh, yeah. And you also find your, you know, if you're, if you look really carefully, you can go down some really fun rabbit holes where if, hey, I didn't realize that that producer worked on this. Wait a minute, I really like that sound. You might stumble across three or four more records by totally different bands that you were unaware of, blissfully unaware of that, you know, you have now become fans because of that production work. Just just as an example. So, I think it's just another organic way of discovering music if you are giving yourself access to those liner notes. Yeah, and then the the artwork by itself too, you know, you look at a, a, a digital library now and you're just seeing image after image after image, but not kind of putting it together that this is a conscious effort all the way around and yeah. what they're putting on the, the album. 
also reflects the album and reflects the the content of the album. You know, the you've you've done a few EPs already. You know how kind of the picking a cover artwork is important to try and get your image out there, right? And right. kind of what's 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 inside that album. And I think that is definitely lost, unfortunately, because you're you're not I think the artists are still looking at the bigger package and the bigger picture, but the the fans themselves are just looking for those singles or something that'll hook them for that kind of instant gratification. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's that's why I think it's also interesting for you to kind of come up with an approach where you're you're thinking about doing singles kind of as a not as a necessity, but just as a different way to keep your voice out there. And to kind of keep the work going out. But I'm sure even with those singles, you're not just going to release a song file out to the world, right? You're going to probably have kind of an idea for artwork behind it too, aren't you? I am. I'm going to have artwork for each individual single. Absolutely. And you know, I'm glad you brought this up because what I've done here is with these with this batch of songs that I have recorded and are um, getting real close to getting mixed at this point, I chose to work with some some local artists around where I live in Pennsylvania to put together some artwork. So the whole idea was to to cut a demo, <laughs> to go back to the sort of older days, I guess, and to get you know to get the reaction of somebody who's interested in developing some sort of cover art just based on you know a small little basis of the song and see what happens, see, see how they, you know, see the approach they take, whether it's, you know, reading the lyrics, whether it's like listening to the actual acoustic demo and, and, and having some fun with it that way. That was, that was the challenge that, you know, that I, you know, gave for each artist that I reached out to. So fortunately they, they all look really cool and they're really fun representations of each of the songs that will get shared as singles. So that was that was kind of cool. Some people worked in in decoupage. Some people worked in oil or pastels. Some, you know, look a little bit more like they they worked with a a design a computer uh, design program. So everybody had their own kind of unique approach based on what they listened to. So that was a that was a fun little creative exercise. That's fantastic. I'm looking forward to it. I think the. The the coolest thing that I've seen recently, and this was a few years back, I went to a San Francisco Comic-Con a few years ago, and what they did, this comic book artist was also a musician. So they put inside the comic the notes that would be inside the music. And if you were to follow along with a comic book, you also were able to listen to the album at the same time and everything would be in perfect time and or you know as much perfect time as you can be because if you're reading too quickly um, you're not able to get the whole experience but having something like that where you have that visual representation of it as well as the auditory representation of it is amazing and then having those kind of coincide with each other and you don't think about that stuff sometimes and you you look at it and just everything's kind of lost in the ether unfortunately where you know that that just piece of artwork that like what you're talking about where this is the cover art that you're going to have for the singles is a direct representation and a direct interpretation of the songs like that is such a cool thing that i don't think a lot of people will put uh hand in hand together mhm and also, you know, if you want to get really hyper local or hyper independent about it, if you really, you know, say say the music maybe is something that you don't connect to as much, but you really like the artwork, and you're really into painting or uh, drawing or sculpting, you might discover another artist that you hadn't heard of before that right. way too. Right. And you know, if they say say they have an art gallery or they, you know, use Instagram or something along those lines, you might, you know, decide, hey, that might be a good thing to check out. I really, you know, care about this other artist's work, that type of thing. So I think, you know, the idea, at least with this batch of music that I'm planning to record, is to also support other artists as well. With with the the podcast that you're doing, are you 
looking at a different ways to approach that with everything that's happening with the world, say like the pandemic, right? And then plus the the music that you're doing and trying to balance that out between the podcast, the music, and your family. Are you looking at a different way to use digital tools? Or are you trying to maybe like with the single approach, are you are you looking at a different schedule? Or are you trying to like keep everything up and running? And is that a conscious effort for you to do that? Boy, that's a loaded question and a great one. I think like many artists, we're we're kind of taking it, you know, literally on a month by month basis. Um, not exactly sure, you know, when the next time I'll be out, you know, playing any shows. It could be eight or nine months from now, depending on right. what kind of what kind of advances there are in public health. So for the time being, I'm really I've been really honing in on this podcast for the past almost year now. Right. It started in August of last year. I've kind of gone on a relentless pace with that. I've literally released one new episode every single week. And having a child, <clears throat> excuse me, in in likely in August, I'm definitely going to scale back for the time being. Yeah. Probably, you know, evolve from, you know, once a week to every two weeks and see how that and see how that shakes out to see if I can get on some sort of regular schedule because, you know, sleeping patterns will change, yeah. time, <laughs> time, time will change actually, you know, time to record and, and prepare right. and, and re- research for, for different records that, you know, I might be unfamiliar with will definitely change. So that, that's also kind of the impetus to behind releasing singles. I mean, the attention spans are what they are with, you know, casual or, or, you know, serious, you know, listeners of music. So to, to stay in that conversation and release singles and, and to have something new to share seems like at least the optimal way for me to go about things, at least for the time being. I wouldn't rule out, you know, releasing a full length of some sort, you know, down the line. But right now, with you know the limited time that I have to balance everything and then contrast with that with the you know limited time I'm going to have you know after August I'm just literally <laughs> flagged by the seat of my pants and, and keeping a running calendar and literally just allocating okay I can work on cover to cover for a couple of hours and then yeah. I need to set it down and, and do some other things like my my passion and my creativity and my my want and desire to you know have thoughtful conversations about music is never going to dwindle it, those episodes might just be you know you know they'll, they'll happen every you know couple of weeks sure. so yeah. that's that's ultimately my goal luckily with this new material that i have i I do have some other songs that didn't make that recording session and I'm always, you know, working on, you know, stuff and, and piecing things together anyways. So I feel I feel good about where things are to just be able to release those songs, continue, you know, working on some long form interviews. That's the beautiful thing about a podcast is, you know, it's a place where you, you know, you can kind of distract yourself and and guess to a degree from you know, from crazy things that happen in the world anymore. So, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm really trying to strike a balance with everything and, you know, still find, you know, times to be healthy and exercise and, and, and everything. It's a, it's a delicate balance, but it's also, you know, a necessary evil to have to put the things that you are really passionate about from a creative point of view down, you know, so yeah. that you're able to do them later on. It's, I mean, it's that, tough. right. That's the, the whole, the whole point of the show. You know, that's, uh, I don't know how to balance it out normally. I don't know how to stay consistent with it. And something that I struggle with all the time because I don't have all the responsibilities that you may have coming up, but I do like sleeping and I do like doing nothing. And I do like playing video games and I do like shutting my brain off. And that makes it to where it's such a harder thing for me to stay motivated to do everything. But like what you said, that that conversation and that passion to talk about this stuff will never dwindle. And I, I think I, I like I like the way that you said that because it's it's always going to be in the back of your mind and it's always going to be something that you still want to pursue. And it's just a matter of making it work, right? And putting in the effort to to do it all and trying to I think goals are important, but I also just think that doing the work is just as important doing it doing the work and just trying to keep yourself to you know 
to say a couple of hours to work on something. One thing I, I, I should mention is even using something like meditation for 10 minutes has really helped, you know, keep things in perspective for me when I feel completely bogged down with the amount of, you know, things that I want to accomplish in any given day, whether it's in the morning or after lunch, just something to kind of, you know, put your mind at ease for a little while. I like that. That's, that's certainly been helpful. I'll have to try. And it's not it. easy sometimes to balance time to do that either. But <laughs> but 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 meditation has certainly kind of eased some of the burdens that I that I feel like other people do. That's fantastic. I feel like I'm always just going to fall asleep. So we'll we'll see if I can actually get it done. Good thing, right? <laughs> it's a good thing. And uh, if you feel like yourself levitating, that means that you're making progress. Oh, okay, okay. So if I'm yeah. just floating from the ground and while I'm asleep, it's still okay. Oh, absolutely. Fantastic. All right. I'm going to be a guru yeah. here and shortly. That's fantastic. What do you think is one of the things that you've learned most about yourself between music and, and even the podcast too? I think I've become a better listener after starting this podcast in, in, a, in a lot of ways. I think really taking the time to just listen to other, you know, the ways that people connect with music has kind of I think it's in in some ways it will help me be a better performer. Sure. I don't really know I don't really know how how else to explain that, but just to be kind of I think even to just be kind of attentive to the room that you're playing cuz you know artists can, you know, get a sense of, you know, what you know can work in a room and 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 what may uh not be the the, the better choice if you were. So I think I think being able to just kind of connect with people that way. And then, you know, it, that can also help you determine a set list. Yeah. As, as well. I think, I think those, those two can, you can kind of interrelate. I like that because then, then you understand a little bit more and you can hopefully maybe translate it into your music too, about just the different thoughts and feelings that people have when it comes to what's important to them when it comes to music because mm-hmm. everybody has a different look and a different feel and a, a different set of experiences that keep them attached to whatever music that they're talking about or whatever art form that they're talking about, right? So yeah. I think that's something that's really important to know that you know not everybody connects the same way. And being able to listen to that and keep that in, the, in your mind will hopefully help you, like what you said, be a better performer, but possibly even down the road, be a better uh, overall songwriter. Because now you're you're thinking, you may not even be thinking about it consciously, but it's just in the back of your mind at that point. Because it's just ingrained to you because of all these conversations that you've had. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's funny like how you know some people might connect to a lyric and that's what you know had them hook line and sinker on a record other times it's you know it could be somebody's stage antics you know that really just drove somebody to be like i'm going to follow this artist for the rest of my life yeah because you know that person has just some serious bravado and i really i really dig that that's great you know sometimes it's just kind of a random guitar tone that you know is is just feels impossible to replicate as an artist and it's a sound it's a sound that you are are trying to chase. So yeah, people like you know gearheads, you know talk about music a certain way, you know avid concert goers talk about, you know, that wave of emotion that happened, you know, during this one specific jam of a song about five and a half to six minutes in like everybody connects to it on a very different level. And it's the, these conversations are super fun to have because, you know, from a live music perspective and even from a recording perspective, two things are always evolving and changing, whether you're in the process of recording or whether you're, you know, rearranging a song in a live setting on the fly. Things always happen. And, you know, even in conversations, like sometimes there might be just like a, you know, a, a thing that you want to correct. And, you know, sometimes that happens, you know, with musicians on stage too. It's 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 about how you recover. <laughs> I like that. To, or, to make things enjoyable. Yeah. Or you go to school to learn how to record on tape and then everything goes out the window as soon as you get out of school. Yeah. Out the window, man. Yeah. <laughs> What yeah, do you the think? Windows. Start start over. <laughs> exactly. Um, what do you think keeps you motivated the most to keep pursuing music or the podcast? 
Hmm. What keeps me motivated to keep pursuing music in the podcast? Well, I haven't run out of things to say yet with my own music. So as long as I still have, you know, ideas laying around, whether they're uh, on cassettes or (laughs) on sheets of paper, I feel like I'm still always chasing songs. And for me, that's a good place to be. Just to always feel like I have an opportunity to keep my mind limber. Conversely, with this podcast, just the ability to be, you know, hopefully an entertaining conversationalist and give people a, you know, a forum to to talk about some wonderful experience that changed their life, and and just to be able to to honestly facilitate that, and you know, stay out of the way and be that good listener. That's that's something that I I want to be, and I also want to be a, a a good you know listener, and you know hopefully even teacher as as an expecting father too. So I I think like having that ability, you know, especially to listen to people, just like you know good musicians listen to other people that are in the band or people that they are collaborating with, will, will certainly just help me and just you know hopefully give me a good uh, positive outlook on creativity and 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 just generally relating to other humans that's fantastic i think that's it man that's it okay yeah. 